Thank you very much. Welcome everybody to this talk about how to be happy. How to bring happiness in your life. Sometimes that people think that what Ajahn Brahm teaches is all very interesting, but what's it got to do with Buddhism? <laughs> but you should know that the central teachings of Buddhism were something he called the Four Noble Truths. The central teachings of the Four Noble Truths go like this. Well, the way I heard it when I first uh, became a Buddhist, it was a noble truth of suffering. The cause of suffering, the end of suffering, and the way to end suffering. When I heard that, I was not impressed. <laughs> I had enough suffering in life. I did not want to be reminded of suffering. But when I first met my first monk, when I was a student at Cambridge, I saw this monk, and he was happy. I thought, that monk doesn't understand Buddhism. <laughs> until after many years when you looked at those teachings in greater depth you realize those four noble truths the central teaching of all types of Buddhism could be rearranged and these days I do rearrange them the first noble truth is called happiness the second the cause of happiness the third that sometimes we are unhappy. And the fourth noble truth, why we're unhappy sometimes. Now when you start to define and explain the four noble truths that way, it's quite clear that the Buddhist path, as most religious paths should be, is all about teaching you about happiness and how to be happy. Otherwise, why would you come to any temple? Why would you spend your Friday evening coming here if all I talked about was suffering and misery and pain and... <laughs> so we're talking about happiness. That's the central teaching of Buddhism. So much so that the Buddha also said, the ultimate happiness, for those of you who know this, in Buddhist language of Pali, he called Paramang Sukhang, is Nibbana enlightenment. That is the highest happiness of us all, the ultimate happiness. So really the path which we practice in our spiritual life is the path of ever-increasing happiness. Happiness upon happiness upon happiness until you get to the ultimate happiness of Nibbana itself. I always wanted happiness. Sometimes people think, what happiness does a monk have? I'll tell you what happiness, this is my father told me this. He said, what happiness does a monk have? have? He said, none. He meant N-U-N. He was a naughty father. <laughs> that, that's only a joke. But no, a monk has lots of happiness. Look at me. I haven't got any money. I have to work so many hours. At least I've got job security. And my retirement plan, my retirement plan is out of this world. <laughs> but I have happiness. And sometimes that's strange. They say, what on earth is a monk doing being happy? You know sex? You can't watch movies? 
You can't go here and go there. I can't even decide what food I can eat in the morning. No one ever gives me a menu when they invite me to their house for the meal. <laughs> whatever they give me, I have to eat it. And if I don't eat it, they get very upset. So whatever it is, they dump it in my bowl. I told people in Australia, I tell you in Singapore, my stomach now does not belong to me. It belongs to you. You can put whatever you like in it. <laughs> but I'm still happy. Now, what, why is a monk doing being happy when you haven't got anything which people say gives you happiness in the world? Strange thing that why monks are happy. Now, one of the stories... No, I'll tell a, a beginning story. As a monk, you learn happiness not through theories but actually through living life. And we're taught as monks to be mindful, to be reflective, and to actually to see in our life what causes happiness and what causes unhappiness. And one of the stories I'll share with you now was a story when I was a young monk. I don't know if I told this story. I, one of the, my troubles is I tell, give so many talks even I've only been here two days, and I've already given about four or five talks or six talks. I don't know what I said in the last talk. Did I talk about the story of pushing wheelbarrows full of earth? No, okay, I must have given that at school or somewhere. <laughs> Thank you for reminding me. Okay, now we're back when I was a young monk in the monasteries of Thailand. These were in the jungles, a long way from civilization. It was tough, it was hard. And even though I was from a privileged background in, in Cambridge, in England, now I had to work really hard. On this particular occasion, we were building the main hall in Ajahn Chah, my teacher's monastery. Now, I know that this is a new hall here, and it's always built on a, on a high place, because that's our tradition to build things on high places. So we had to build a hill out of earth. It was a monk-made hill. Fortunately, I wasn't there at that time. I visited afterwards. And when I visited, there was a lot of earth left over. So Ajahn Chah called all the monks together, maybe about 60 or 70 monks, and he said, move that earth. We only had one meal of the day, and it was very, very poor. But nevertheless, from about 9.30, maybe 10 o'clock, all day to about 10 o'clock in the evening, We'd shovel earth, put it in wheelbarrows, and move that wheelbarrow of earth down to the place where Ajahn Chah wanted. We took three hard days of labor, sweating, aching, being bitten by mosquitoes, but I had faith. I thought this was good karma, so I kept on pushing those wheelbarrows, but I must admit, when it was all over after three days, I was very happy. I thought, wow, we finished it. Tomorrow I can have a rest, I can meditate. That evening, Ajahn Chah thanked us all and announced the following day, now the work was done, he was visiting one of his other monasteries. The following morning, after breakfast, the monk in charge, the deputy monk, he brought all the monks together and said, I've been thinking, I don't think that's the right place for the earth. Let's move it round the corner. Now that was testing my faith. 
But I thought, no, I respect that monk too. I'm a Buddhist, I will let go, I will push those wheelbarrows for another three days of hard work, toiling under the hot conditions of a Thai jungle, working so hard, enduring all those mosquito bites. After another three days, we'd finished. Now I was really happy, really relieved. We'd moved it and they were happy. But that night, Ajahn Chah came back. <laughs> and yes, you've guessed what happened. He got all the monks together and he said, what did you put it there for? I told you to put it over here. Move it. Another three days of pushing wheelbarrows was in front of me. I didn't become a monk to push wheelbarrows. I didn't you know, put on the yellow robes to be exploited like this. We monks should form a union. We should stand up for our rights. Because the senior monks, they didn't push any wheelbarrows. They were just telling us what to do. So I got very upset. I got very angry. In fact, I started swearing. In English. <laughs> so the tires couldn't understand. <laughs> they did understand. They see my facial expressions. And one monk came up to me. And he gave me a teaching which helped me for so many years. He came up and told me this. He said, pushing the wheelbarrow is easy. Thinking about it is the hard part. Pushing the wheelbarrow is easy. Thinking about it is the hard part. How true that was. As soon as I stopped complaining, as soon as I stopped thinking about it and just pushed that wheelbarrow, that wheelbarrow was lighter. And there was no suffering anymore. It was the thinking which caused me the suffering. Why me? This is unfair. Can't those monks decide what they're going to do? Why did I join a disorganized religion? <laughs> <laughs> so, once I stopped complaining, it was easy to do. I pushed those wheelbarrows and it was no problem. I learned a lesson. When I learned whatever you do in life, Thinking about it is the hard part. Doing it is easy. Whether it's giving a talk in public, whether it's going for an exam, whether it's whatever test you have in life, stop thinking about it so much. Just do it. And the talk this evening is sponsored by Nike. <laughs> you just do it. Now, how much in your life do you think too much? Thinking too much is a great cause of suffering. There's so many things in life you just have to do, so stop complaining. But you know, that only work for a short time. Because later on, you know, I did complain even more about what it was like to be a young monk in Thailand. You know, I was much thinner as a young monk than I am now. When they say that Buddhism is growing in the West, this is what they mean. <laughs> but my trouble, the reason why I'm fat, it's not that I eat too much, I don't worry enough. <laughs> but no, when I was a young monk, I was so thin. And one of the reasons was, whenever we got any food, it was given to the senior monks first, 
they took their share and they passed it down the line of monks according to seniority. So by the time it came to me, there was only the, you know, the remains left, what everyone else didn't want. I thought that was so unfair because after all, all those senior monks, they were probably already enlightened. They didn't need nice food. It was me who needed the nice food. I could appreciate it. They wouldn't even appreciate it. Anything would be good for them. And all the senior monks, they'd have all these big cushions. And the junior monks, we had to sit on the hard concrete. And I thought, I was so thin and bony. I was the one who needed the cushions. Those fat monks, they had their own upholstery. (laughs) And they made us work so hard. And they never did any work. They just sat around talking to people all day. Oh, it was so unfair. So I complained. And one of the monks said to me, Ajahn Brahm, you've got what we call young monk suffering. When you become a senior monk, you'll be fat, you'll have the choice of food, you'll have the biggest cushions. You will not have young monk suffering anymore. You'll have senior monk suffering. <laughs> and sometimes I do that. I think all those young monks, they don't have to fly all the way to Singapore. They don't have to give talks all day. They don't have to listen to people talking about their children, their marriage, their finances and everything else. I became a monk to get rid of all that stuff. (laughs) And that's called old monk suffering. (laughs) Now the point is you're not getting rid of suffering, are you? In my monastery some years ago, two Thai girls came to see me. They were sisters. So they came for free counseling You know the reason why monks are good counsellors? Because we don't charge, we're cheap. (laughs) Already that people gave some ung pows from my temple as I came in here. I told them if they don't like the talk they can ask for their ung pows back. (laughs) No. When I was uh, doing this, these two ladies came to see me. The first one, her problem, they were both sisters, Her problem, she was married, she had a husband, she was having a lot of suffering with her husband. He was giving her a very difficult time. She had husband suffering. And when I sort of talked to her about being content, you know, having more loving kindness, whatever it is, then I asked her sister, what's your problem? And she said, I'm single. I want a husband, I can't find one. I thought of a solution, but they wouldn't buy it. Well, someone had a husband they didn't want. Somebody didn't have one and they wanted one. It was obvious to me. (laughs) But afterwards I told her, Madam, the one who's married, you've got married woman suffering. You've got single woman suffering. If you get rid of your husband, you won't have married woman suffering anymore. You'll have single woman suffering. And you, if you want a husband... You won't have single women suffering anymore. <laughs> You'll have married women suffering. <laughs> you don't get rid of the suffering, do you? Because that's what happens. People think, oh, when I meet my partner in life, when I meet the one who's made for me, then I'll be happy ever after. <laughs> get real. <laughs> you know what the word marriage means? It actually comes from a Latin word meaning to gamble. <laughs> It's true. Marriage means to gamble because it's a big gamble. 
So whatever. The, when, <laughs> when a person gets married, they, they let go of, they, they've given up single person suffering, now they've got married person suffering. So all of you who are thinking, I want to get rid of this husband of mine, I want to get rid of this wife of mine, you're not going to get rid of suffering. You're going to just change one type of suffering for another type of suffering. Those of you who are working, you think, oh, I have to work so hard. Oh, I have to get up so early in the morning. Oh, it's just so tough at work. I want to change my job. You don't get rid of suffering. You change this work suffering to another type of work suffering. And if you lose your job, you don't have workers suffering anymore. You have out-of-work suffering. <laughs> it's the same when we grow up. Kids, they can't wait to grow up because they've got young people suffering. We think, why are they suffering for? Kids have so much fun. You forget. When you were young, you wanted to grow up because you had young people suffering. When you get to be a teenager, you have, don't have kids suffering anymore. You have teenage suffering. When you grow up to be an adult, you get adult suffering. You don't have teenage suffering or young people suffering anymore. And when you get old, you don't have middle-aged suffering anymore. You have old-age suffering. People want to retire and they think, when I retire, then I'll be happy. This because when you retire, it's actually usually the old people go to temples and they go to churches. Look how many people go to temples and churches when they're old. You know why? Because they think, when I die and go to heaven, then I'll be happy. <laughs> but when you go to heaven, you just get heaven suffering, that's all. <laughs> you don't get rid of it. Imagine what it's like in heaven. When I was taught about heaven, it was like you eat ambrosia. And you have all these people playing harps all the time. After a while, that will really get up your nose. Harp music again, day after day after day. Ambrosia. Can't I have some noodles? Can't I have a Big Mac? Actually, this happened once. This man was in heaven. And he was having ambrosia. All the people were dressed in white. Even the girls, just white shawls with little rings on their head. The fashion hadn't changed for thousands of years. <laughs> so he went up to complain. He said, look, why don't we have some proper music up here? I like rock music instead of this harp stuff. Can't we get a few electric guitars up here? He said, all this ambrosia, can't we have a menu? Can't we have some nice noodles from Singapore? Can't we have some you know, nice vegetarian food from Europe? And also, you know, I'm in heaven now. I'm supposed to be enjoying myself. Can't we have people a bit more fashion? And the angel said, look, I'm sorry, we can't do that. It's tradition. And at that time, he got a vision of hell. And down in hell, they had these great rock bands. He saw it down there in his vision. These really cool bands. And the women down there, they were all dressed in beautiful um, dresses from Milan, great hairstyles. All the men were in Gucci suits. And the food down there was like a five-star restaurant. And he said, look, that's what they have in, in hell. Why can't we have better than that in heaven? And up in heaven, the angel said, it's tradition. It's been like this all the time. We can't change it now. Thousands of years it's like this. And the man said, he complained, this is unfair. I want it like it's done. I want good food, good music. 
nice, beautiful women and nice, beautiful men. I'm in heaven after all. And all the angel would say, look, if you like it that much, you can go down to hell. And he said, okay, I will. So he went down to hell. And he couldn't see any beautiful music or beautiful girls or wonderful food. These terrible demons with big fangs <laughs> came along and put him in a, in a big cauldron of boiling oil and started poking him with his forks. He said, hang on, hang on, what about my vision? In my vision I saw these beautiful girls, I saw this great music and delicious food. What about my vision? And the demon said, oh, that vision, yes, that's our advertising campaign. <laughs> Never believe your adverts. <laughs> so, even in heaven you have heavenly suffering. The point is that in those sorts of worlds, Sometimes we look and there's always some type of suffering in our life. When would you ever get happiness? We always think that when I become rich, then I'll be happy. As a poor person, you get poor person suffering. As a rich person, you have rich person suffering. You're not getting rid of suffering that way. But a few times in my life as a monk, when I stopped complaining, actually life wasn't so bad. A lot of times I realized that when I complain, it was my thinking was being negative. Too often in life we think in negative terms. That's one of the great reasons why we suffer. We are complainers. The Buddha called it the fault-finding mind. It's so easy to find fault with life, Fought with your partner, fought with yourself, fought with anything. Even up in heaven you can find fault if you look hard enough. Now the point is, is that really being fair to life? Someone asked me a good question as I came in here. They said, is it just right to be an optimist and think what a wonderful world this is and how great it is? Is that really being real and rational? Is that what happiness is? being in delusion and fantasy? I said, no, it's not. Well, then should I be a pessimist? Because I read in the newspapers all these tragedies, the war in Iraq, the terrible things which people do, sometimes children getting hurt and abused, cancers in our community, people dying young, all these tragedies in life. How can it be happiness when we have all these tragedies? And I told them the story well, I should have told him the story. I wanted to expand upon what I said outside, inside today. That very often we can look at the world and see just what's wrong. In brief, I told him the story of my brick wall. Many of you have heard that before, so I'm going to say it very, very brief. Now, you want me to say it again? Okay. The story of my brick wall. I told you yesterday that when I became a monk, I had to work hard. When I first went to Australia, we only had very little support. The reason was because people didn't trust us. They didn't know who we were. Who were these guys in brown robes? Were we real monks or fake monks? So for the first year or two, the people looked at us to check us out, as you should do. As they were checking us out, we didn't get much support, but we needed a place to stay. So our monastery, the land which we brought was empty of any buildings. We spent all our money just buying the land. We had nowhere to stay. 
my first place where I stayed in that monastery was a door on three, four, no, three bricks on every corner. And, for, and the door was brought from a salvage yard. Because I was a second monk, the abbot got the best door, the one which was flat. Mine had ribs on it. Also, the door hole, the doorknob, was in the middle of the door. They had to take the doorknob out, so I had a hole in the middle of my bed. I joked, at least I didn't need to get out of bed to go to the toilet. <laughs> but the wind would come up in the morning, would come up through that hole. I hardly slept. It was very, very tough those first few years as a monk. And we used to work so hard, many hours a day. I had to learn how to build. Yesterday I said about learning how to do plumbing. I also had to learn how to lay bricks. Laying bricks is not easy. You think all you have to do is put some mortar down, put a brick on top and make it level. But when you put the mortar down, you put the brick on top, there's always one end is higher than the others. So you have to tap that end down. That end goes down, another end goes up. So you have to tap that end down. Then it moves out of line. So you've got to tap it into line again. Then the first end goes up. It takes forever to get that brick straight. But one thing which I had, which all monks have, is patience. doesn't matter how long it takes, I'm going to make sure that every brick is perfect. So, that's what I did. Every brick I made sure, if it wasn't right, I'd take it off and start again. When I finished my first brick wall, I looked at it, and I was so disappointed. I was so shocked. I was so distressed. I'd missed two bricks. All the other ones were nice and level, but two bricks were this awful angle, and they spoiled the whole wall. I tried to take them out, but the cement was just so hard, they just would not come out. And so I talked to the other monk with me, and I said, can we buy some dynamite? Can I blow up that wall and start again? And he said, no. I wanted to destroy that wall, because it's... I'd made a mess of the first building project I did at that monastery. And I was so disappointed. And I I saw it every day. Every day I went past that wall. I was so upset as I saw the two bad bricks and my mistakes. When visitors came, I always managed to take them somewhere else. (laughs) So they wouldn't see my mistakes, because your mistakes are always embarrassed about. But one day, a visitor came. I was with them. They saw that wall. And what they said was, that's a beautiful wall. I said to them, are you crazy? Are you blind? Have you left your glasses in the car? Can't you see the two bad bricks? And they said, yes, I can see the two bad bricks, but I can also see the 998 good bricks as well. That hit me like a brick. I realized my mistake, not only in that wall, but in life as well. Just too often, all we see is our two mistakes, and you become blind to anything else other than what is wrong. That's what was happening to me. Every time I passed that wall, my eyes would just go to my faults, my mistakes. I could not see anything other than my two mistakes. 
Once they were pointed out, I realized for every two bad bricks there was 998 good bricks. I realized in life, every time I saw a tragedy in life, every time I saw someone being abused or hurt, there were 998 times, or probably much more, when people were being kind and caring and beautiful and wonderful and loving and generous and inspiring. But why is it we only see the faults in life? This is a psychology of the mind, which once you understand this, why is it do we always dwell on faults and mistakes? And why is it we can never see beyond the mistakes and faults in life? Most people are actually pessimists. A pessimist is someone like myself in those three months who always sees the two bad bricks in life. The optimist is the person who only sees 998 good bricks. The realist is one who sees both. Yeah, there are mistakes in life. There's a lot of beauty in life as well. Because I was a CEO of a monastery, a boss, because it was my concern to make sure that monastery was well maintained, the monks were looked after and trained, that everything was done well. Because I was a manager, what does a manager do? But look after the faults and the problems. It came to the point when I wasn't enjoying my monastery anymore. Because every time I was there, some would say, this monk had missed the chanting, this monk was not doing the right thing, the gutter was leaking, the wall needed painting. It was always a list of problems and faults. When I saw that, I decided that to change the way I lived in my monastery, I decided that once a week, on every Monday morning, I would deliberately go for a walk in my monastery, deliberately being blind to everything which was wrong and needed fixing and needed done, and deliberately looking for all the things which had been done in the monastery. I went out for looking for what was perfect in my monastery. Because you know, people would come to my monastery and say, oh, what a beautiful monastery that is. And I say, are you blind? Can't you see that path which is, needs sweeping? Can't you see that wall which needs painting? Can't you see that gutter which needs fixing? Can't you see that monk which needs fixing? Because that's all I would see as a manager. Now, I changed. What I did instead was at least once, once a week, I'd go around there deliberately looking for what was right in my monastery. Because I was too much of a pessimist. Managers are pessimists. They're fault finders. That's their job. That's what they're paid for. But I decided I wanted to look for what's beautiful in that monastery. Once I started looking for it, I could see it, and it was a beautiful monastery. I started to appreciate the place I was living in. Do you appreciate the place you live in? Do you go into your kitchen and look at all the dishes which have been washed, or do you only see the dishes which haven't been washed? <laughs> Isn't it wonderful to go back home and see all the dishes which have been washed, all the floors which are clean? and appreciate your home. Now that idea of appreciation, it's not just being an optimist, not being a pessimist, it's being a realist. You look at life 
and you find, my goodness, there's a lot of beauty in that life. There's a lot of beauty in my home. There's a lot of beauty in Singapore. How many times do I come here and ask people, how's the economy? Oh, not so good. Even when it was booming, oh, not so good. <laughs> it's always not so good. When is it ever going to be good? When you appreciate it, that's when. So, appreciating things means to see what we already have. It's gratitude, it's a positive a attitude. If you can do that, you find you can live with other people. You don't see what's wrong in your wife. How many of you, whenever you look at your partner, your wife, your husband, start to see what's wrong with her? She did this, she did that. And they come and tell me, she did this, she did that, she did something else. He was laid at home. What about looking at all the good things he has done? What about looking at the good things she has done and telling him? It's how many times when you talk to your partner or you talk to your kids, do you tell them what they're doing right? <laughs> and how many times do you tell them what they're doing wrong? Most of the times you speak to someone is to point out their faults. You take their goodness for granted, that's why you don't see it. That's why you don't have happiness in your relationship. Don't you want to be appreciated? Don't you want all your hard work to be acknowledged? All your sacrifice? All of your care and love? So why don't you tell your partner, thank you for being who you are. Thank you for all the hard work, all the sacrifice. You worked so hard for me, for the family, for the house. You try that, it works. Not only does it make them become a much more soft partner and more, more willing to do more for you, it brings you happiness as well. Because happiness is actually sometimes seeing the full picture of life, which is not that bad. We're learning how to not to complain, learning not just to see the bad side, but to see the positive side of life. Sure, there's wars, but how many places are there no wars? Sure, there's cheats in life, but how many people aren't cheats? I was told this story some years ago. There was an argument in a classroom. The children in the class were getting so upset at each other, about to have a fight, that the teacher called order and told everybody to sit down and gave each one of them a piece of paper and ordered them to draw a vertical line down the middle of that piece of paper. And then the teacher told them, choose somebody, someone you really hate, you dislike, you don't like at all, put their name on the top, on the left-hand column, list all the things you hate about them. They just had an argument and it was very easy for each one, the boys and the girls, to put down the name of someone they didn't like and to fill that left-hand column with all of their faults. When they finished that left-hand column, the teacher said, right, now that person lists all the things which you like about them. That took a bit longer, but once they started, the kids could actually write what they liked about the enemy. Right, said the teacher, Tear that piece of paper carefully down the middle. On the left-hand column, 
All of the things you don't like, screw that up, put it in the wastebasket. The right-hand column, what you like about that person, go over and give it to them. It stopped the argument, but did more than that because many, many years later, at a funeral of one of those children, he was a man who'd been in that class as a boy. At the funeral, the wife rose up to give a speech about her husband, to give a eulogy. She was telling about her husband and the things which meant so much to him in his life. And she brought out this tattered old piece of paper, the piece of paper which he got from one of his enemies at that time in his class when he was very young. And his wife said, this piece of paper my husband has been carrying around ever since he was a boy. It was from one of his enemies who wrote down all the things he appreciated in him. And she said, whenever my husband was upset or depressed, he'd always get this piece of paper out and read it. And that would always give him hope. It always eased the pain of his life. It meant so much to him to be appreciated even by an enemy. When she said that, there was about three or four people spontaneously stood up. They opened their wallets and their purses and they also took out old pieces of paper. They too had kept those pieces of paper which meant so much to them. They were also from the same class. They'd come to the funeral to say goodbye to a friend and the wife had pointed out something which they had kept secret and now they acknowledged that praise they got from their enemies had kept them going through so many tens of years. A little bit of praise creates a lot of happiness. All it's doing there is focusing on the positive side of life. Why do people complain so much? Surely can't we be more appreciative of the people in our life? Because once we become more appreciative of the people in our life, then we become more appreciative of ourselves. Do you like yourself? Or are you a complainer? Do you only see the two bad bricks in your life, the things which have gone wrong? Or can't you see those other things which are beautiful? Anyone who has a cancer, is that all you see? The disease which is in your body? Can't you see more than those two bad bricks? There's more to life than the disease. Cancer is only a word. Life is a whole story. When you see more, then you can take these things much more in your stride. In fact, as I said to a person this morning, you can even enjoy your cancer. How can you do that? When I told that story of the brick wall many years ago, it was actually at a cancer group in Perth. One of the men came up to me afterwards and said, that's a very interesting story, Ajahn Brahm, about the two bad bricks. Please don't feel so upset because in the professional building industry, all bricklayers make mistakes. And then he told me a secret. 
He said, in the building industry, when we make a mistake like that, we tell our clients it is a feature and we charge them an extra two, three, three thousand dollars for it. It's the only building like this which has got this feature. All of the features, even in this building, probably started as mistakes. Now that's a beautiful ending to that story because the mistakes in life, the cancers, do become the features of our life. When you see a sunset, if there was no clouds in the sky, it's never beautiful. If the sky was perfect, the sunset wouldn't be enjoyable. You need a few clouds, a bit of dust, some imperfection there to spread the light from the setting sun into beautiful streaks of orange and purple, glowing gold in the dying light. That's what makes it beautiful, a little bit of imperfection. Do you really want life to be perfect with all the bits straight? I will tell you there'll be no happiness in such a world. There'll be no beauty. There will be no reason for those wonderful qualities of the heart called compassion and love. What I've been saying so far is learning how to embrace the bad bricks of your life. Learning to see beyond the faults which create unhappiness in life to see life in a greater fullness and appreciation. It's nothing different than love. What is love anyway? It's not liking somebody. Anyone can do that. What love is, is loving things which sometimes you don't like. How can you do that? How you do that? is in the words of my father who took me aside as a 16-year-old and he said to me, Son, whatever you do in your life, the door of my house is always open to you. His house was a very, very small apartment. It was nothing much to open the door for anyone to. But what he meant was not his house. What he meant was to say, Son, Whatever you do in your life, the door of my heart will be open to you. That's called love, unconditional love. I was saying to that wall, wall with all your two bad bricks, the door of my heart is open to all of you. What I was later to say, life, Life with your cancers, with your deaths, with your wars, with your disappointments and your joys. Life, the door of my heart, is open to all of you. I was opening my heart to life in its fullness. Not just that part of life you like, but to all of life. I was appreciating the harshness of life as its features what really makes life beautiful. Sometimes people can't understand that, but it's true. I said yesterday the simile of dog poo. Sometimes we 
think the tragedies of life. My wife dies, my child gets run over by a, a lorry, I lose my job. There are tragedies in life, real things which hurt. But whenever you get a tragedy in life, it's called fertilizer. It's like cow poo, or even worse than dog poo, elephant poo. Have you ever seen how much an elephant lets out of its backside? Imagine you're standing underneath it. <laughs> That's what life is like sometimes, getting dumped on by an elephant. That's sticky, that's smelly, and that's very, very offensive. It's like getting cancer, like losing your job. It's like someone leaving you, who you love. All those other tragedies in life. That's being dumped on by a big elephant. But what do you do with elephant poo? You take it to your garden, you dig it in. If you complain about it and you're stuck with the dug poo, oh, why did the elephant dump on me? Why did it do it to me? If you just stay with it, you're going to stink. <laughs> When you carry around dung, when you carry around dung, when you carry around elephant poo, you find you lose a lot of friends. And that's when people get negative about life. It's not the way to deal with the problems of life. Instead, we dig it in to our garden. Whatever happens to you in your life is fertilizer for your compassion. It is fertilizer for your wisdom. You dig it in to your life. When you dig in the fertilizer of unhappy situations, painful experiences, great disappointments in life, all of that is fertilizer for you. If you know how to use it, you find in a few years, could be months, could be many years, You've dug in all of that dung, all of that smelly, offensive elephant poo. And in the place of the poo, you've got this beautiful garden. Your flowers are more fragrant, more full than the ones next door. And it's not just for your enjoyment and benefit, because the scent of the flowers goes all along the street shared and enjoyed even by passers-by. If you have fruit trees in your garden, the fruit from your tree is so much more abundant and sweet than anything you can buy in the shops. As I said yesterday, the sweetness all comes from the poo. And you share all of that fruit with others. In that simile, the flowers stand for your compassion. The fruit stands for your wisdom. The more poo you have in life, the more compassion and wisdom you have. So when you really understand about life, hooray, whoopee, more poo for my wisdom, more dung for my compassion, give me more, more, more. You can do that. And why not? If you have the disappointment, you lose your job, or your wife leaves you, you fail in your exams at university or school, you get a cancer, the person you love most in life dies, what are you going to do about that? 
Don't carry around the poo in life. There's too many people doing that and it smells. <laughs> Dig it into your garden. You can grow so much wisdom and compassion. And I mean that if you've really been through it, if you've been through a divorce, if you have lost your job, if you know what depression is like, if you've gone through a cancer, you are the one who can put yourself, your arms around somebody else and say, I know. You're the one who can really help. Some years ago, I was teaching in prison. I love teaching in prisons. It's a strange thing that in prisons you find the most honest people in the world. In real life, people will never tell you the truth. They will deceive you sometimes. They will say one thing, they're not really being honest and open. But when you go to prison, in Australia anyway, everyone, as they say, straight up, straight down, they tell you how they feel and they will not put on a face. It's a place of surprising honesty in a jail. When I went to this one jail, after just before teaching the meditation, two of the prisoners, I always remember one of the prisoners' name, he was Nick. He said, come over here, Brahm, come over here, I want to show you something. What had happened, that Nick and this other man were in jail for importing drugs into Australia. They got involved in drugs when they were young to make money for their habit. They'd imported drugs. They were caught. They were sent to jail. At a close, at a nearby school, a teacher was trying to help the children not get into such a problem with drugs anymore. She wanted to do a session of warning her children of the dangers of drugs. She talked to her headmaster and they thought that maybe they'd get some professor from the university or some expert from the government. And they realized they could find a much better expert than those. They rang up this prison and they invited two prisoners to come to their school and teach the children what drugs really mean. What better experts can there be than those who have actually played that dangerous game, got caught and suffered the consequences of their actions? I really praise that school for having the courage and the guts to invite prisoners to teach their 10 or 11 year old children. Those prisoners went there. They taught from the heart. It wasn't a theory. They'd been there. They'd done that. They'd suffered. They had that done and they knew how smelly it was. So when they taught these 10 or 11 year olds, the 10 and 11 year olds were listening because they had the experts, the ex-drug addicts who told them what happens when you start playing around with those things. Not only was it a marvelous thing for those children, 
Nick said, come over here, come over here, a few days later when I visited the jail. The following morning, the teacher, appreciating that Nick and his friend coming to teach her kids, said, let's send some cards to Nick and his friend. These 10 and 11-year-olds in their art class have made his little cards, saying, Nick, we hope you get out of jail soon. Nick, we wanted to put a file in the cake we're sending to you, but teacher wanted letters. Nick, please come and visit us when you are released. Nick, we hope it's not so bad in jail for you. All these little cards of kindness from these, these children. And when Nick took me over to these cards, which were displayed on the wall of the prison school, he burst out crying. This hard drug dealer and addict just wept. It's wonderful seeing a man cry like that. He wept because now he had the chance to help. He knew what it was like. He felt he wanted to stop other people going the same road he'd gone to. Now he had the chance. And my goodness, he was good at it. I'm sure that those children probably never went near drugs after Nick and his friend gave them a realistic description of what it's like from the heart. What a wonderful thing that was. But only they could teach like that because they knew what they were talking about. Sometimes the suffering and pain in life enables us to really have compassion and wisdom for others. So when those things happen to you, if they do in life, don't just think two bad bricks, something we need to destroy in our life. These are your features, things which can make you a beautiful, wonderful, compassionate, wise person. After a while, the suffering in your life becomes happiness. It's what makes you wise, compassion and happiness. So we don't just go around complaining about life. We get in there and dig it in and make something out of it. We become happy people. I have a very hard life as a monk, but I turn it to my advantage. And I create happiness no matter what I have to do. Do you like going to the dentist? I love going to the dentist. They've got the most comfortable chairs you could ever find, especially for a monk. Or I can lie down there for hours and hours. You can do it with my teeth. I'm just enjoying lying in your nice, comfortable chairs. You can always find something positive to enjoy if we don't just look about you know, what happens in the drill going into our mouth. We think too much. I never mentioned this before, yesterday, but fear is thinking too much. I'm going over time here, but I can't resist telling this story of one of the people staying in our monastery has very bad teeth. Our monastery being about 60 kilometers from the center of Perth. He didn't like going to the dentist. It was just too much trouble. But he managed to find one dentist who would take out his teeth without anesthetic. He didn't like using the anesthetic. And he, so he, got, he found one dentist. He became famous amongst all the dentists in Perth. This was one of the people in my monastery who could have his teeth taken out without anesthetic. Could you do that? He did one better. Because one day, 
he decided it's too far to go 60 kilometers to have his tooth taken out. He decided to take it out himself. He took out his own tooth. We saw it. He was by the workshop with a pair of pliers with a bloody tooth in the grip of the pliers. I asked him, how do you do that? When I ask these questions, I know the answers because I know my mind. I know fear. I know pain. What he said was this. He said, when I decided to take out my tooth by myself without anesthetic, without going to the dentist, that didn't hurt. The thought, the plan didn't hurt. When I walked to the workshop, that didn't hurt either. Even when I chose the pliers, that wasn't painful. When I put the the pliers on my tooth, that didn't hurt either. When I wiggled it, that hurt for about two seconds, that's all. And then the tooth was out. After it out, it hardly hurt at all. It was only two or three seconds of pain. What's the big deal? Now, if that was you, even before you picked up the pliers, it would hurt like hell. (laughs) You can see how thought makes it hurt. This is going to hurt, this is going to hurt, and it's already started hurting. Thinking is what creates most unhappiness in in the world. So at least actually see if you can have wise thinking. Instead of just looking at the two bad bricks, look at the other bricks as well. Instead of thinking, this is going to hurt, this is going to hurt, this is going to hurt. Live more in the present moment. It hasn't hurt yet. So who knows? Leave it alone. Don't predict the future. Leave it alone. Instead of thinking, thinking, I don't want to do this, I don't want to do this. Doing it is easy. Thinking about it is hard. Just do it in life. And whatever happens to you in life, you can always make use of it. It's always fertilizer for your wisdom, for your compassion. This is being realistic. It's making use of life. It's embracing life. It's loving life. It's saying, life, the door of my heart's open to you. It's not life is a problem. It's the way we look at it is the problem. I'll finish with one story. Again, a prison tale, which I love telling as well. At this time, I was already abbot, so busy, come to Singapore and other places, one of the other monks had to go to jail in my place. One day after giving the talk in jail, the prisoners invited the monk for tea. He stayed a bit longer and drank tea with the prisoners in this high-security jail. And the prisoners started asking him, what's it like being a monk in your monastery? What do you do? And so he told him, oh, we get up four o'clock in the morning. Four o'clock in the morning, they said. Even in prison, we don't have to get up till six. Can you have a cup of tea? He said, no, no tea. You have to meditate on the cold, hard floor until maybe about half past six. Sometimes you get a breakfast, sometimes you don't. They don't even feed you a breakfast sometimes? No, sometimes not. Then what do you do? Then you have to work really hard for two or three hours. And then you have one meal all in the same bowl. Everything gets mixed up. The ice cream goes on the curry. The custard goes on a spaghetti. What? They don't even give you separate plates? There's no choice? What happens next? Can you watch the TV? No TV. Music? No music. Sex? Oh, certainly no sex. 
Can't you even watch a movie? No, it's just meditating all afternoon. What about sport? No sport either. What time do you go to bed? 10 o'clock, 11 o'clock, that's all. Do you have nice beds? No, sleep on the floor. They were disgusted. They were amazed. They were just so upset that their friend who came all this way to teach them meditation had to live in such squalor and hardship that one of them said, forgetting where they are, that's terrible in your monastery. Why don't you come in here and stay with us? They invited the monk to stay in prison because prison was more comfortable than my monastery. And it is. That's why I'm never afraid of going to jail. (laughs) I get more to eat in jail. I probably get a choice as well. I can watch the TV in jail. (laughs) So why is it in my monastery in Perth there's a waiting list of people trying to get in? Why? (laughs) Why is it in jail? People are trying to get out. Fascinating question, isn't it? Why do people love coming to visit and stay in my monastery? And why do people, even though the jail is so comfortable, want to escape? The reason is that being in prison, it doesn't depend upon how comfortable or uncomfortable it is. Any place you don't want to be is your prison. If you're in a relationship you hate, you feel like you're in prison. If you're in a job where you really don't like it, your job is a prison. If you're in a body which is hurting or sick with cancer and you don't want to be there, it becomes a prison for you. If you're in a body which is disabled and you don't want to be there, your body becomes a prison. If you're in a situation, a life situation which you hate, you've had a tragedy and you don't want it, your life becomes your prison. It doesn't matter what you're experiencing in life. Whenever you don't want to be there, then you're in jail. In a monastery, it's uncomfortable, it's harsh, it's austere. If you want to be there, you feel free. If you want to escape from prisons of life, be content with your partner, then you'll feel free. Be happy to be in your job, then your job is not a prison for you anymore. Even if you can be content with your cancer, you're free. This is fertilizer for my wisdom, my compassion. Thank you for visiting me. The door of my heart's open. Come in. If you can be content to live with the tragedy of your life, then you are free. You don't need to change life. Just the way you look at it. That's all. It means you can be free anywhere even in a sick body, even without a job, even without a partner in life, even when you have no money. If you're content to be there, then you are free. Doesn't matter how austere a monastery is, you are free when you're happy to be there.
That is the secret of freedom. That was the prisons of life. Any place you don't want to be, that's your prison. You don't need to change the prison. Just change the way you look at it and your prison becomes your freedom. Nelson Mandela did that 27 years in jail. Other people do that. I do that in my monastery. I don't know what I'm doing tomorrow. Somebody comes up and says, Ajahn Brahm, get in the car, you're going to give a talk at Manjushri School. They say, Ajahn Brahm, get in the car, you're going to give a talk on the radio. Ajahn Brahm, get in the car, you can go home now and have a rest. I just do what I'm told, that's all. That's why I feel free. I'm content no matter whatever happens. What about money? Have you got enough money? I'll, I'll finish off with telling you how to be rich. Do you want to be rich? This is how to do it. When I was a young monk, I was not allowed to have any money whatsoever. That's why those people who give ang pals, I don't receive it myself. Someone receives it for me and it goes to my monastery. It builds my monastery, my monk factory. But I don't get anything out of that whatsoever at all. Even my robes, you see the robes? Even though I'm a famous monk now, I don't wear lame robes. My robes are not made by Gucci. My robes <laughs> are just the same robes any other monk wears. But now and again, there is an allowance in the monk's rules of discipline. If I've really helped somebody, and they said, Ajahn Brahm, I want to give you something for you, not your monastery, something personal. You've really, really helped me. Can I give you something? What you can do, you can say, Ajahn Brahm, this is actually what happened in Thailand many years ago. I'd helped someone, they said, look, I really want to get something for you. I've got 100 baht here. Now, 100 baht was like Thai currency, worth only about $5. The 100 baht here, what do you want for 100 baht? What can I get you for that amount of money? Usually, they actually say the amount of money, so you know exactly what you're doing. And at the time, actually, I was quite happy. I didn't want anything. And I said, actually, I can't think at the moment. I said, can you come back tomorrow and I'll let you know? So they said, yeah, actually, I'm coming back to the temple tomorrow. You think about it. I have 100 baht here because you really helped me. Let me know what you want for 100 baht. So I went back to my, my room and I started thinking, what do I need for 100 baht? And I started to think of one thing, and then another thing, and then another thing. In about 10 minutes, 100 baht was not enough. And I tried to take some of those things off my list, but they were really important. And I just couldn't take them on the, off the list. In another five minutes, even a thousand baht wasn't enough. And these were really essential items, things I really, really needed. And I realized what was going on. When you had some, some money, it was never enough. And so I actually screwed up that piece of paper. I threw it in the bin. When he came the following morning, he said, never do that to me again. Before, before you told me that, I was so content and happy. Now you made me get desire up. As a monk, I want for nothing. I want for nothing. Nothing is what I want. If you want nothing, then you're someone who wants for nothing. Then you're at peace, then you're content. It really taught me about what, how to be rich. 
with a hundred baht or a thousand baht or a million baht or a billion dollars US. Do you think that will make you happy? Some will put their hand up and say, I'll give it a try. <laughs> it doesn't make you happy. If you have one billion, you want two billion. Look at Mr. Gates. He still has to work hard every day. Poor fellow, he can't take a holiday. Whatever amount of money you have, it's never enough. When you have contentment, whatever you have is more than enough. Haven't you got enough already? If you haven't got enough, again, you're in prison. Because you're not happy to be here. If you think, today I've got enough. I've got a wonderful partner. I've got wonderful children. I've got a wonderful country of Singapore. Even I've got a wonderful cancer who's teaching me the Dhamma. What a wonderful thing this is. I've got wonderful experiences. My wife has died, but it was so wonderful knowing her for all those years. What a wonderful thing life is. Then you're content. Then you're free. Then you know happiness. Because the Buddha said, happiness is the end of craving. Now I've just taught you what the end of craving was. Thank you. <laughs>